Welcome to the In Search For More podcast, where guests join me in my search for more, more from myself and more from life. I'm your host, Ellie Nash. I sit down, sometimes with one person, and often with a panel to talk about various topics I'm interested in learning more about. Welcome back to the In Search Of More podcast. This conversation uh, so far is probably one of the most important ones I've had. Often when I have conversations, it's about topics that I'm intimately familiar with in the sense that I struggle with those things. In this case, I sit down with Stephanie Pollock, whose husband passed from a drug overdose, Miriam C., whose husband is a well-known sex addict, and Rabbi Simon Jacobson. You know, Miriam and Stephanie both have experiences that are far different than mine. As a matter of fact, hearing from them to some degree, obviously, on a different scale. And I thought it was an important conversation for me to hear and for many others as well. Stephanie is brutally honest about her story. Uh, Miriam has helped countless people as her and her husband have walked the path of recovery for decades now. And Rabbi Simon Jacobson is Rabbi Simon Jacobson, one of the most impressive rabbis in the world. If you haven't heard his name, I encourage you to check out his work at TheMeaningfulLife.com. I will see you at the other side of this conversation. So today's topic is called collateral damage. Uh, Collateral damage is a scary topic for me to address and to touch on because by talking about that, I'm acknowledging that there was some collateral damage from my own addiction. And what I tell a lot of people new to recovery is that the first process in recovery is realizing the way we've been hurt by others and to really be able to name and acknowledge and own uh, the pain that was caused to us, whatever that pain was, often a pain in childhood, but sometimes not. And a lot of us don't recognize that we live in fear. A lot of us don't recognize that we've sustained major trauma or major pain or that our parents weren't 100% who we needed them to be. And there's work we need to do as adults to get some of the things they weren't able to give us. And that's kind of the first stage of recovery. And for those who are able to get through the first stage, the second stage of recovery is realizing the ways in which we've hurt other people. And that's often much, much tougher to, to get through the, um, the guilt, the shame, um, especially in an environment like today where oftentimes someone does something wrong and the public shaming can be so quick and so ruthless, even if it's from something a long time ago, the guilt that someone, when recognizing the pain they caused someone else could be very real. I often share about my own story when my wife, then girlfriend, found out that I wasn't quite the person I, um, she thought I was. I would say because of my porn habits and because of some other um, addictive habits related to other women, uh, it caused her a lot of pain. And I, I didn't know I can hurt another human being that much. And it's one of the things that motivated me and propelled me into recovery. One of my main motivations today is I never want to hurt another person in that way. But that doesn't change the fact that those things are real. Damage is real. So today we have a panel of Miriam H. She'll be telling her story. Stephanie Pollock. I met her about a year ago. I think it was about a year, maybe a little bit over a year, when you shared your story at a mic drop evening um, about losing your husband from opioid addiction. It was very powerful to, I'll never forget that night. The air conditioner wasn't working very well. It's a packed room, <laughs> about 80 or 90 people in a, in a small room. And uh, your story was extremely, it moved me tremendously. And it's one of the reasons I reached out to you today so that others can hear your story. And then my friend, my teacher, Rabbi Simon Jacobson, who's been on a couple of these panels as well, 
uh, to share some of his thoughts and insights. So without talking too much about it, Stephanie, if you want to hop in and share a little bit of your own story. Hi, I'm Stephanie Pollack. Um, coming up six years ago, my husband, Mati, died from a drug overdose, July 4th, 2014. And it started prior to our marriage. Um, it started from a from a surgery that he had as a result of a surgery that he had, um, where the painkillers kicked into his life. Um, and then it followed with doctors prescribing him Suboxone as a long-term solution, as opposed to weaning off of painkillers. Um, so when we were, you know, we had broke, we started dating in high school. Um, we broke up plenty of times throughout the course of those years. Um, but when we got back together for marriage and in the beginning of the marriage, he was more than functional because there was nothing wrong with him because he never experienced any withdrawal symptoms. There was any, there was nothing crazy going on because he was taking a Suboxone every moment of every time. And I really wasn't aware of what was going on. Um, I understood it as just being medicine as a result of the surgery. Um, we got married and although we had planned on waiting two years into marriage to start a family, God has other plans and seven months into marriage, um, I got pregnant and, but there was always this pattern every time we went to New York, cause we had moved down to Florida from Brooklyn after we got married and we would always go in for yuntiv for holidays and for weddings. And every time we would go, there would, there would, there would be this cycle of this roller coaster of emotions of, you know, depression, complete MIA in Brooklyn. And then we'd come back to Florida and then there would be this roller coaster of emotions again. And me being this, like, you know, this, uh, how do you call it? Codependent, which I didn't know what that word was then. I was cheering him on and rooting him on. I'm like, come on, Mati, you are so capable. You are, you are such a leader. So many people depend on you, your work, everything you do, everything you've done is so amazing. You know, every single day, like get out of bed, get out of bed. There's so many people that are waiting for you. Look at who you are all the, every day, every day was so draining. But when I found out that I was pregnant, the, it, it went from being an emotional roller coaster to complete isolation where I didn't know that he had gone on full relapse mode from that point, from that news. And, um, you know, being alone all the time throughout the pregnancy was probably one of the most painful experiences. Um, I, you know, at first I, we moved to Florida. Part of our excuse was, you know, cause we did not like living in Brooklyn. We didn't want to raise a family in Brooklyn, but it was also, we wanted to, I don't know, I got like he had demons he wanted to run away from. And I had my family where I wanted to detach from to start anew, you know, obviously unhealthy reasons, but, um, they call it the geographic cure. Yes, exactly. Like they, like they talk about in the big book, don't worry there. We went to, we went to Alaska for that. We went to Vancouver. We went to Chicago. We went many places, you know, um, but still I had no idea why we were spontaneously jumping on a plane to go all the way to Alaska to go on a cruise for seven days. No idea. Like great spend quality time with him. There was no quality time because we were just on a different, we were just in different worlds apparently. But there was, 
you know, my pregnancy started, um, and as the time progressed, as the summer progressed, it was getting worse. And I didn't know, I just knew he was less and less there and available. Um, you know, saying he'll be home in a half hour, not showing up three hours later, phone not available, constantly calling people to get in touch with him. Like my life just became so consumed and involved with like how to get in touch with Mutsi. When are you coming home? Yelling at him every second. I just, I was transforming into this hormonal monster. Um, and I also Do you know had, anything about the drugs at this point? Not yet. Not until not I, yet. towards the end of my, my pregnancy, till the end of the pregnancy, when things were apparently getting bad and he sat me down, I was seven and a half months pregnant and he sat me down and he said that he had a problem and he's going away for 10 days. And when he comes back, like as if it will be cured, like he was going to go into detox. I didn't know what he was going away for. I didn't know what it was. Um, and I said, great, you do what you got to do. I love you. I'm here for you. I'll be here when you get back. Um, he went into the other room and in our first apartment, the walls were so thin, you can literally hear everything. And I hear him on the phone with the insurance company and he's saying things like opiates and milligrams. And, and I, I'm starting to Google and I'm like, okay, this is, this is much worse than I thought it was still didn't know because I didn't, I still didn't understand, but more than that, it wasn't my problem. It was his problem that he needed to fix, but I was still going to be there at the end to like have my cape and make sure meals were ready and lunches were set. And I ended up, he went to, he went to detox for 10 days. They called me and they said that, you know, they really highly recommend that my husband go into a 30 day facility. And I said, that's really nice but I'm about to have a baby soon. And I have Thanksgiving to make at the end of the month for my family. So he can't not be there. And my priorities were just like, what are other people going to think what's going on in my life? I can't, can't come up with a lie. I had to lie a week before because I went into New York for my best friend's wedding and Mutsi wasn't there, but he was in Europe. And that, you know, and then the lies just start and and it just dominoes in from one lie to another. And I told him that he he had to come home He was, you know, he said he was going to follow whatever plan he was going to follow going to, you know, meetings every day. And in the beginning, I was like on top of him. And he also told me what to look out for. If if I see him scratching all the time, slurring his words, dozing off, then I'll know that he's using. And he also admitted that all the money that was constantly depleted from our account was because of him. And he used me as an excuse for my shopping habits. I'm like, there's only so much a person can buy at home goods and bed, bath and beyond. It's not hundreds of dollars a day. Um, but I didn't know. And I believed him. I believed all of that, um, that I, like there was so much at fault of like what I was doing and I wasn't perfect. I know I wasn't, um, in my ninth month where I thought he was, you know, done with whatever it is that he went into detox for, you know, he was going to meetings and, you know, I share this in my mic drop that I would, we were supposed to go to Key West for Shabbos. And he said, you know, he'll be home at a certain time. He's going to be home at four. So he can do the drive on Thursday and it would be perfect and amazing. Another spontaneous, you know, trip, you know, after all this time of not spending time with each other and he didn't show up until close to 11 o'clock at night. And we ended up checking into a local hotel in Hollywood Beach for Shabbos instead. And the next day he said he was going to a meeting and that he was going to be back by noon. And he didn't come home by noon. And I also got into this crazy 
sick pattern of constantly checking our bank account because I, my trust was already starting to, I was losing that trust in him. And I don't know what possessed me that day. And I went onto the bank account and I checked and there were close to $600 withdrawn from our bank account during the time he claimed he was at the meeting. And again, I was just waiting to attack. So all I was doing, like waiting to point fingers and waiting to attack, waiting to say all the horrible things. And I did just that when Chavez started that night, um, I caught him red-handed and I just, you know, I, I pushed him down to a worthless nothing that he already felt. And I felt good for, for like a quick minute, but then when he promised me he was never going to do it again and he didn't know how it happened and why it happened. And it was also quick PS the building next door is where his drug dealer lives. So he purposely planned this whole situation, but I didn't know that until afterwards, you know, he promised it wasn't going to happen again. And I, and I so badly wanted to believe it because we're about to start a family and we were about to do all these things. And, you know, you know, his word meant so much to me still. Um, and the next day happened and the same thing happened where he didn't stop and it just continued and it, and it snowballed really bad, really painfully. And like I share my mic drop, that was the first time I went on that carousel of insanity of doing the same thing, expecting different results. And I did that over and over and over again for months. And what was that same thing you were doing? Believing that there was change that was going to happen when there was no change happening. Nothing changes if nothing changes. And there was nothing changing on my end either. I was just becoming more. The only thing that was changing was my anger and my resentment and all these negative feelings and this tension of and this disgust of like, who is this person? Who is this person that I'm married to? I don't know who you are anymore. It was it was very hard. And this is the person I've known since I'm 15 years old. A couple of weeks later, I have my son, I give birth to my son. And again, you know, there was that abstinence and I talked, there's, you know, abstinence and sobriety are two different things. Walking on thin ice. um, I've seen it. I I saw it in my marriage with him. I seen it in my own in a way. Um, You know, there is a huge difference between those two words. And it was six weeks. Um, I was six weeks postpartum, and I also did. I also did the geographical, uh, you know, change of scenery, thinking it would help. I would always run away to back to New York to my in-laws because they were a safe place for me. Because I was still hiding it all from everyone in my life. I was no friends knew about it. My family had no idea what was going on. They had no clue. No one. I had no friends to talk to about it. Um, And I would run away to Brooklyn every single time something would happen. And um, I ended up there and my, you know, his father found out about Rabbi Kessler's first Jewish recovery Shabbaton. It was that first year. And he was like, go, just like, you know, Mati, go. And he's like, I'm only going to go if Stephanie is going to go. I need her support. I need her to be my cheerleader. And I'm like, of course, I'm your wife. I'm going to be there. Like you go to all the shirim, you go to all, not shirim, you go to all the meetings, you go to all the speeches. I'll be there with our baby. I flew back from New York. He promised he was going to pick me up. And again, there was that insanity of like, I waited at Miami airport in the heat with a newborn baby for about two hours because he kept missing the exit. So he claims, but it was just because he was so high that he kept missing everything. And again, that anger built up again. And the next day came and like I shared my mic drop, I was trying to feed our son and I was crying and he was crying. And that was when I just hit my rock bottom of 
this is uh, am i allowed to use bad language no i shouldn't use bad language. like this is like this use is whatever language is, they're not i don't i don't, I don't i don't think there's bad language i think there's what powerful is happening language. here there's like what is going on in my life like my I, I am causing so much distress and so much pain never mind i don't even care about my own i can mask it i can shove it with food i can do so many things but this child isn't eating child isn't his body is not functioning well and is a result of me and his environment that he didn't choose and like I say, that was the first time I finally chose something in my life and I chose my son. And I went on that Shabbaton. And again, I went thinking that it was just for him. And I ended up meeting a phenomenal group of other people, of spouses and loved ones. And they were like, oh, sweetie, pie, come here. You know, like you can sit with us. That's pretty much what it felt like. And they were, they were gentle and they opened me up to... Are you feeling this? Are you feeling this? Like, can are I, these can your I pause symptoms? for one second? Can I pause for one second? You mentioned you kind of went quickly through the bottom, and I'm wondering if you sit in the bottom for a little bit. You said that you hit your rock bottom. What were the feelings? What were the emotions? What I was, was in my thoughts? rock bottom for a lot more than just that. Like, I was in the rock, my rock bottom even after. But I'm sorry, what was your but question? That, that moment when you hit it, what were the thoughts? What were the what were you telling yourself then? What changed? Right? Something snapped. It's like the back broke. What I was. What I shifted? Was, what, I, what was the new belief? Or the new realization. The new, the new belief was that I needed to make a change around me. I needed to, something needed to change because he deserved, my son David need, deserved something healthy in his life, deserved so, stability in some sort of way. I want to drill down. I didn't know how I was going to get You need there. to change something. I needed to change something for him. As opposed That's, to thinking your husband needed to change something. Right. Right now I couldn't, I, I had to focus on my son who wasn't getting anywhere. I couldn't put the focus on him yet. I put so much focus on, I put, I was putting, I was constantly putting focus. And even after that moment, I was putting focus. I mean, that whole weekend, I still put focus on him. Like, this is all about you. And as a result of me being there, I ended up gaining, you know, a wealth of knowledge and exposure to a whole language that, and, and, you know, community of people that I didn't know existed. But at that moment, I realized that I needed to make a change for David. It wasn't me personally. your son. David, my son. Okay, let's do this. Let's let's pause here just for a minute because it sounds to me like you're about to segue into the solution and some of what you learned, which I want to get to in more of a panel discussion. But Miriam, I'd love to hear some of your your story as well um, in terms of, you know, Stephanie spoke a lot about the, the drug addiction. I believe your story is being the wife of a sex addict. I'm sure there's some similarity, some difference, but I'd love to hear a little bit of your story before we open it up to... Uh, Rabbi Simon and the larger group. Stephanie, thanks so much. I encourage uh, those watching and listening to Google her name and watch her mic drop talk where she goes into some additional detail and the emotions are, um, you'll see some raw emotions, but I think it's important to understand that it's one of the, the, the main reasons I do these things is that I think we have to name things specifically in order to, to deal with that. And it's also, Stephanie, why I wanted to draw, what was the specific thought that you had? What was it that you said because when we name things in generalities, it gets very difficult to address something. When we can break it down into a specific and name it with a, with a word, it's often where the healing begins. So Miriam, welcome from Israel. First of all, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity, because usually I'm on the other side trying to support uh, women who are going through this. And now I, here I am coming forward and telling my whole story that happened 26 years ago. It ain't easy, but I'll do my best because this is a, <laughs> You know, in, in, in Judaism, there's a concept of somebody who's doing chuba. It's not the same person anymore. And thank God, 
the Vidhaim is not the same person. So I'm going to have to scratch my memory bank and do the best I can in order to support the women who are listening, the women, the spouses that are listening to this. So, um, David Chaim and I, I think I it's important that you say that although the panel ended up being two women um, who are talking about their, their spouses, there's, there's the reverse all the time. There are female addicts as well. It's not always a, the male addict when with I, the female codependent. I was very surprised when I came to meetings in, 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 and, and I saw a man. And I'm like, holy cow, <laughs> there's a change here. So, um, okay, so what happened to us? David Chaim and I, were, we, we were the cake on top of the wedding. We, we were the couple on top of the wedding cake. We were the, perfect, we were the oh. perfect couple. I remember when Burt Reynolds was asked by Johnny Carson, I know I'm, it's dating me, what happened when you left Lonnie Anderson? He says, you know how heavy it was to be the couple on the wedding cake? It was I had to perform constantly that everything was perfect. But yet it was not. And it was not because I did not understand the habit of flirting in the restaurant with waitress, flirting with your babysitters, looking at porn and it's okay, having magazines, a porn magazine, and it's okay. Because I was a very naive girl, moved to, from Israel at 21. I thought that men are just that way. And at the 11th month, year of my, my wedding, that's when the, the straw that broke the camel back was that I learned that my husband is having an affair. Huh. Just he, to clarify, he, so until then, some of the habits weren't secret. No, it was just that I... The know, attempt was more to normalize the behavior. Yeah, everybody's, everybody's doing that. Everybody's looking at it. I mean, I remember that we used to go with couples to, uh, to a strip club. You know, that was just like a normal thing. Right. And the codependent, which uh, my colleague here, Stephanie, mentioned is, yeah, I was a, a very, um, very codependent, doing what my husband is happy to do, keeping him happy. But by the time I, I was uh, in my past uh, being in the army, I was working as a spy. I'm not going to go into much to it, but uh, <laughs> I found out on my own that my husband is having an affair at the day of my anniversary. On the day and of your 11th anniversary. Yeah, and I was in New York, and we made a pact that... It doesn't sound like such a good spy that it takes 11 years to figure it out. I'm kidding. Yeah. 11, 11 years is, is usually, it's either 7, 11, 21, 24. Like a breaking point. Yeah, it's, it's so, a recalculating if this is a marriage or not. I heard, so, I heard, that. I heard the 7, yeah. Careful. <laughs> Regardless, uh, we, we had a pact that he will call me from his car phone. Back then, there were car phones, you know, those bricks, in, mm-hmm. you know, between your with two seats uh, at a certain time. And I was waiting at the hotel. I was on, on, a, on a business trip and um, no phone call. And it was not like him not to call. He was always there for me. And I hear in my business trip that was very, it was very, very important business trip. I know he would be interested to know what, how it went. And I did not get a phone call. And I, I call him, there's no answer. So I was smelling something that is just not right. When he came to see me in New York, he was over-functioning like crazy. And I'm like, come on, something is wrong here. When I got home and I started getting phone call from a lady that I, I was, was introduced to us in a camp that the whole, all the families were in. And I'm like, I put the two and two together and I, I came to him and I said, 
What's going on? No, nothing, 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 nothing. And for six months, there was uh, things going on at home that I, I just could tell that it's, it's not, it's not, it smells bad. And, uh, um, no, it was actually five months. And then we came out clean on Saturday night when a friend of ours says, if you want a good marriage, you just say it all. And he came forward, took a lot of courage, and he said it. And just I you threw and a fit. Yeah, we did, we did full disclosure. I know often they, they recommend full disclosure with a professional in the room or a third party in the room. 26 years ago, there was no such thing as SA or SNN. Right. When I went to my therapist, he didn't even detect it as, a, as an addiction. I mean, I didn't have meetings. There was nobody there to come and say, you know, you have an addiction at home. I, I mean, what I saw around me is constantly fr- flirtatious. We supplied X-rated videos to some of family members because they need it. I mean, there, there was no such thing as sex addiction. Right. In fact, there are still and people was, who, not, who deny it. I was not religious. Excuse me. I was not religious then, so it was not like, oh, you can't do this, or it, it was some, it was a cultural thing. It became normalized. You see, it, it became normalized exactly. I tell you, I think I paid enough for my therapist for his jacuzzi and swimming pool, <laughs> and new renovation in his home for the ten years I've seen him, and still nobody told me this is an addiction. Nobody. Nobody told me, you know, you're codependent. Nobody told me, do you want to stay a victim? Nobody empowered me. I was there to just sit and talk and that's it. And then the best thing that ever happened to us was that somebody enlightened us to say, you know, there are meetings for you. And that was 12 years later. But somehow, somehow, with divine intervention, when I learned that this is, that my husband had had, um, an affair, and he came clean, I set a huge, strong boundary that said, I need to feel safe. I need to see that what you're doing is real. And you have a a span of a year for me to feel that I'm safe and you're not going to betray me. Now, the betray and the shame was such a pain because now, now when I'm looking back, I see how it is, the pain is so much ancient. The pain of shame and blame and betrayal, it's such an ancient pain that it's exasperated by my husband's affair and addiction. At the time you found out about the affair, did you connect it to the other things that had been normalized for so long, like the porn and the strip clubs and the other behaviors, or you still saw it as two separate things? That's a great question. You know, my husband was still having porn addiction even after the affair. And I looked at it as this is his problem. He wanted me to be his web chaver, you know, the uh, accountable, uh, accountable uh, person to see if he's partner, getting yeah. a, a, a website or not. And at first I said yes. And then in the other, I'm like, oh, this is corroding inside of me. I don't want to know this. This is your problem. Go handle it. So I set this boundary again. I want to say something about your... Husband, for those who haven't heard his story, uh, we did a webinar together a few weeks ago called Exit Strategy. I believe your husband has helped, I think he said over 1,300 people get sober from pornography. And today he's uh, turned his life into uh, one of complete dedication and service to people who struggle with this. So I just want to 
put that out there about him. And if they want to learn more about his work, he's one of the founding members or one of the anchors at Guard Your Eyes. If you want to learn more about his work, besides for your website, 2b1institute.com, there's also the the webinar we did together where he goes into detail about his own story and what he learned and how he helps a lot of people. The yes, pain has like certainly said, converted to, to a purpose. His name is David Hyam. It's very hard for me to go back there because this is not the same man. I, I, I'm doing this because I think it's so incredibly important for women out there to realize that when there is this habitual behavior of watching porn, looking at porn, from the small, uh, it's a surfacing of, of flirting, which it, 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 it's a family thing. I saw it in the family, to soft porns in movies. To They call it a chronic, gradual disease. And this is what I saw. This is what I saw. I had to take care of myself. And I don't know how, what happened, how I learned this. But um, I, I, had a, I had a lucky star that taught me, Miriam, if you're not going to be setting strong boundaries and know what your threshold is of how much you can put up with and what you're not going to put up with and, and just say how you feel, uh, it's, it's not going to be a marriage. Yeah. And Can I pause so, you for so a second? Because it sounds like you're going into the solution now. And I want to get to um, Rabbi Jacobson a little bit, and then we'll get into um, this, part, this part of the conversation. The one thing that I heard between both you and Stephanie, and I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but it sounded like you both got to a point where you had to look more at what you were doing versus what they were doing. Sounds like a very important shift, but I appreciate both of you for for going back there and sharing that pain because likely there are people on this call who are in that place and seeing someone, both of you talk very comfortably or, or relatively comfortably about this, this topic. And to be able to do that is not possible the first time. So in order to connect with someone who's there is to really share the pain of that story and the details, the beliefs that we held then, the beliefs that were shattered, and so on. So Rabbi Simon, I'm sure you're no stranger to these types of stories and topics. I don't have to uh, lead you in with too much. What is What, what are some thoughts and what are some uh, a message? Firstly, I'm sitting here uh, you know, emotionally empathizing both Stephanie and Miriam, the courage to speak about this. I don't have the words to describe my respect and even awe of uh, just uh, basically embracing your vulnerability and uh, all the darkest sides of human nature that emerge in these type of circumstances. You know, first being that codependent and helping feed it, and then going through what was called rock bottom or other epiphanies, which includes the shame and the guilt. I mean, um, so uh, first thing, I think it must be acknowledged. And anyone listening to this needs to know, no matter where you are in your life, people like Stephanie and Miriam are tremendous, tremendous assets. They're real, uh, they really manifest and personify what human dignity is about. Because I think at the heart of it all, what strikes me in hearing your story, and of course, many similar stories, but every story is its own story, is when you see the, looking for the right word, the desecration of human dignity, what we would call Salam Alekim, the divine image, both of the addict and the collateral damage, the impact on the spouse or the loved ones, which in many ways is even worse because here you are, an innocent person, did nothing wrong, fell in love with someone for the right reasons, the wrong reasons, we'll say for the best reasons, and then discover this uh, shameful uh, form of total betrayal of themselves and of you, 
of everything that really is about what you want to love and build in your life. And you're suddenly this uh, victim, firstly, of secrets that you didn't even know about. And secondly, of the whole, the patterns and routines that both of you described each in your own way. You know, it's like a whole story, but when you fill in the blanks, you see there's ups and downs. It can only, I mean, it's like a nightmare, a nightmare of denial, accepting what's true, what's not true. Can I believe? Can I not believe? I really want to trust the one I love. It's critical to uh, recognize that the essence of it, and I'm using now Torah terms, is the trampling upon and the betrayal of and the abuse of human dignity, the creation that each of us was created in the divine image with indispensable value, beauty, sanctity, holiness. And newborn children all have that. And you are all newborn children, as all of us. And then life takes over, and suddenly you're in this swamp, in this uh, nightmare, where your own person, your own value, you start questioning your own judgment. So I think it's vital to recognize that we essentially human beings have the full right and the full, I would say, even gift of our divine human dignity, that the majesty of what it means to be a human being. And to me, that stands out immediately. When that gets contaminated and toxified and stolen from you, it's literally like robbed from you. It's another form of abuse. You know, a child being molested, or I don't want to use the harshest terms, a child being raped by a loved one, we all understand what kind of damage that does. But you know something? Even if you're an adult and you're in some way abused by your partner, willingly or not willingly, whether they're in control or not control, it's exactly the same impact. It's stepping on and in every possible way undermining the thing that is the most vital component in a human being, and that is self-value, self-esteem, healthy self-confidence. So the real challenge is how do you get out of that? And when you do discover yourself, you do discover your voice and that you have the right to have a voice and realize it's not a contradiction to the love of your codependent and realize that the more you can embrace your love of yourself and your voice and your dignity, the more you'll actually be helpful. That's when the transitions begin to happen. But to get there, sometimes it requires rock bottom. Sometimes it requires real, I mean, many situations you'll find mothers, I think Stephanie said it, that she was doing it for her son. Some will do it not for themselves because you already feel Either you feel such like such a schmata and worthless, or you just feel trapped in that, uh, what they call the, the Stockholm Syndrome, where you can't get out of it. So you need something, and often it's a child or some other value that you say, no, that's already crossing a line. And then what happens is the emergence, the re-emergence, I should say, of the true human, the true spiritual dignity of your spirit. So what I take from this is, number one is, of course, you can't describe the pain, but above all, we're doing this in order to be able to give strength and hope and some encouragement to people out there who may not yet be at the stage where they're ready to uh, discover something. They may not want to hear it. They may not want to believe it. They feel that's their only life they have. They think, you know, once you breathe toxic air for too long, you start thinking that's my only option. So, of course, we want to come away with this at two heroines like yourselves, who in many ways, I have no doubt, and I'm sure we'll hear about it from you, once you've... Once you've get regained, you reclaimed yourself, have reached probably heights in uh, human dignity and divine image that other people who never was never robbed from them may never reach a level of refinement. And I feel, again, humbled and honored to be here and weigh in 
I mean, I don't want to sound like an observer that's a commentator, like, uh, you know, the guy that's calling the, the, the play, play by play, because I have to say, you know, my own life experiences, I've not had this directly, but indirectly by dealing with people and speaking to people and really putting myself in their shoes. The horrendous pain that you see from the collateral damage is far, far worse than the original problem. That's how it is, because the original problem, if you can nip it in the bud or in some way contain it, but once it starts impacting and it starts hurting others, Ellie said it at the outset, it's much harder to deal with the people you've hurt than hurting yourself. Because it's like, why would I do that? I, t- I took a beautiful person and I hurt them. You know, it's one thing what I did to myself is also unacceptable. And then it becomes something that we look for ways to heal. But the goal, of course, is to know that at the end of the day, the human dignity, the divine image in which we're created is more powerful than any type of abuse, any type of um, uh, I called the, before um, desecration or a betrayal or a violation of that. If we keep that in mind, that we say every morning in the prayer, the soul you have given me is pure. To me, that's the single greatest, most powerful healing and recovery statement because everyone says it, even those that have been terribly addicted or those that have been hurt by those that have been addicted. Because it tells you that the pure always remains stronger than the impure. It's a matter of accessing it. That's not easy, but we have to always remember there's a light there. There's no way that the spark ever is extinguished. Sometimes it needs a lot of digging. But I think that if one message that comes out of the story is that we can fan that spark and get it to come alive again, that's the secret to recovery and growth and uh, not remaining your own eyes damaged goods, but actually reaching heights that are unprecedented. Yeah, what's, what's interesting listening to you is that your message is as relevant uh, for the addict as it is for the, I'll use the word co-addict. The, the word codependent started as co-addict. So it's, it's, it's a message for both. If we don't lose sight of that, and that's been the process, the process for myself has been to recover my, my self-esteem. And when it starts shifting and Admittedly, the last couple of weeks have been probably some of the toughest for myself in recovery in a while, and some of the, the urges and thoughts around porn coming back and some other stuff. And what I find is that the beliefs that sit there behind that, which the beliefs are essentially what fuel the addiction, are often rooted in shame. The idea is that I, I did something that's, uh, that can't quite be redeemed. And from both sides, that has to happen when another human being makes us feel that way or it's that we're the cause of the pain to someone else, and then also to somehow recognize that we still deserve our dignity despite the fact that we've been caused pain and have caused pain to others. In the big book, in talking about steps eight and nine, steps eight and nine deal with amends. Step eight made a list of all people we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all, and step nine made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do them would injure them or others. So those are the steps where that's dealt with. And when it's talking about those steps, it says we go there and we're honest and we're honest about our mistakes. And what we do is make an amends. And uh, my sponsor is always very careful to remind me that when we, an amends is not the same as an apology. It's not saying, I'm sorry. It's saying, how can I make it right? Uh, Whenever I write an amends and I show it to him, he tries to remove the word I from it as much as possible. There's no excuses. There's nothing else. It's just an amends. Financially, it's the most easy to understand where if $100 was taken, $100 is returned. It's not, I'm sorry for taking the $100. It's here's, Here's it back is what can I do to make it right? Certain things are years that are lost and it's not possible to 
give back years, but it is possible to put it in the hands of the other person and say, what do you need me to do to make it right? And what I love, it says in the, in the big book, it says, we go there with our, with our chest up high. We go there with our head held up high. So we did make these mistakes and we're fessing up to it. But at the same point in time, I think it's, it's, it says something very similar to what you're saying. I, I don't have the words in front of me, but the feeling I got was the same, that we are children of God. And we stand in front of people saying, these are the mistakes we've made and we're ready to make them right. And we apologize for it. But we're also not a doormat to be walked on simply because of those mistakes. That happened. So it was it was very relevant to me hearing your message that it's it's for it's for both. It's for both. It's a beautiful message for anyone affected from addiction. Our dignity is not lost. I wanted to just add, if I may, once you mentioned that, you know, if you go back to the story, the biblical original story in Genesis in Bereshus, I I think people don't realize the power of it. That after Adam and Eve are uh, naked, they're born naked, they're adults, and they're not ashamed of their sexuality. Why? Because it's part of the divine plan. It's a seamless flow. It's like young children. A newborn child is not ashamed of its sexuality. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's never been hurt. It's never been abused. It's never been selfish. It's part of a deeper uh, picture. But then they eat from the tree of knowledge. Not when knowledge, they suddenly become aware of themselves, self-conscious. As they become self-conscious as opposed to divine conscious, there's now a uh, split. There is a uh, dissonance between who you are and why you're here. And what does God say to, uh, so then they are ashamed, and because of their shame, they cover themselves. Okay, then Adam hides from God because he's embarrassed. He's embarrassed that he's betrayed himself, that he's violated his mandate. You know, the first time he lost his innocence, he lost his uh, seamlessness, purity. And God says, where are you? Of course, he knew where he was. Physically knew where he was, but you've betrayed yourself. I don't recognize you any longer. We were connected. We had a partnership here. It's like you say to a friend, not, I know where you are, but we're, we're, you're not present. And it's such a profound statement because when you go through those stages, you realize shame is a natural expression of something that's wrong. Think of it like pain. Pain is not pleasant, but it's telling you there's something wrong. Go do something about it. Shame is exactly that. It's telling you something is wrong. What are you ashamed of? You're ashamed of because in a way you've betrayed. There's a part of you that's ashamed of another part of you. And that search of who are you, Ayeko, where are you, and reclaiming is really the story. Now, I'm not saying this makes it easier, but there is a, there is a formula. Well, I think it puts a vision on the horizon of possible, right? That despite the fact that someone goes through horrible things or even does horrible things, there's redemption that's possible. When, when I experienced the shame, and because of it, I was, I was raging. This is my drug of choice, like they say. It's because underneath it, I was feeling that I was powerless and needing to control. When I'm coming and, 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 and re- reacting to my husband for what he has done, and I'm feeling the shame, is because I'm feeling that I'm less. And this is a, a, a perverted way of thinking about my worth, because I, I stayed away from listening to what I'm saying every morning. So if I know that I'm pure, what is there to be ashamed of? But to be ashamed of is there's no room to be shamed. There, what, there, can you name the shame, of, Miriam? Can you, can you name, what, what is the thought? Is the thought that you're wrong because your husband did something wrong? The thought is, is that he, he betrayed me. How could he have done it? I'm not enough for him. That's shameful. Got it. Oh, got it. Okay. I'm not enough for him. 
What is this? I'm beautiful. I'm keeping my weight. I'm I'm watching how I look. I I, I keep up with myself. I'm a, I'm a le- and, and what are you doing? So that's a huge shame. Right. So the shame there is is coming from a place of, of gaiva. I want to be in control of you. I want to change you. When yet I'm not accepting that the fact is that this is this is who he is, and I'm no matter what other people do to me, I, it's, I'm having a choice how to react. But if I know who I am, it wouldn't matter to me what other people are doing. And of course, this is my husband. I had to separate my husband from the disease rather than putting it all together and saying he is the disease. He's not the disease. Right. He is all, he's just as pure neshama as I am. He just have a, a set of, of challenges that God has given to him that he could manifest even better men than he is. But again, this is the shame. This is the biggest work that I've done, it was the shame. And right. again, and that, like I mentioned before, the shame is an ancient feeling that I felt for a long, long time ago before I even encountered the... the, 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 uh, the um, Before you met husband. your husband, probably. Absolutely, because, it, you, you know, you grow up, if, if chas shalom, God forbid, you, you pee by, by mistake, you, you have an accident, you're being shamed. Why aren't you perfect? Or you're not, you're not bringing a, a hundred in, in your score in, in school. It's, oh, it's, it's shame, shame, shame. Look, that's our society, unfortunately. Miriam, I'll tell you a story. Um, one of the things that impacted me when I was starting to notice that I wanted to live a life without porn and then eventually getting to that place that I uh, put the kibosh on it. And one of those things was a video I came across where a porn star was talking about why she stopped making porn. And the turning point for her was walking into her boyfriend and finding him watching porn. And she said it shifted her whole perspective where until then she thought a bunch of people are watching me because I'm more attractive than their spouses. I'm more attractive than who they have available to them. And suddenly she's like, I walk in on my boyfriend, the one person that I'm willing to have sex with without pay, without money from love. And he's watching someone else. And it shifted her whole view of what pornography is. So I encourage those who, um, as, as someone who watches porn, it, it op- who's watched porn and watched way too much of it, it operates on a completely different track than just whether someone who uh, I love or, or is available to me is enough for me. It's more likely that I feel fear and the fear makes me go to porn than that I feel aroused. And then I go to porn. And then when I feel ashamed, then yes. And once I'm ashamed and I'm in that space, then I'm less likely to want to interact with another um, human, with another human being. In sex, um, in in sex addiction recovery, they often say that this is an intimacy disorder. And we have tr- when when we have trouble being intimate with another person, that's where. And the more that gets exasperated, that's where the problem uh, really surfaces. Stephanie, I have a question for you, and I'm debating whether or not to ask it. Should I ask it? Shoot. I'm here anyway. Shoot. Absolutely. When I hear Miriam's story, right, there is clearly um, a happy ending attached to it. 26 years after exposure, uh, 12 years later, she eventually found recovery. And now they're both in a place where they're helping a lot of people through it. Does your story have a happy ending? Are you in the happy ending? So my story is still happening. And my story is one of living and more than just surviving each day is a choice that I make that leads me to the end of the day where I can do my gratitude list every night. I don't know if you see them on Instagram. I see them on Instagram all the time. Yeah. But Beautiful. The, the fact that that's part of my day-to-day life, that's proof in the pudding that there's 
I'm more than just content in my life today. Six, almost six years post, you know, Mati passing. So, so the answer is yes. Yeah. It's a beautiful, it's beautiful. a beautiful thing to say. Beautiful. Is that um, there doesn't always have to be an obvious happy ending for there to be joy and gratitude and hope. You know, on that topic, last summer, I remember New York and Long Island, they did like a whole get together of the police, the Hatsala. I, I know a friend told me about it after the effect and she shared, she, she was frustrated. She went to it. She's a therapist herself. And she, she said that, you know, there was Hatsala, there was Hatsala member there. There was the police department there. There was a therapist there. She said, there was no one like you there. She said, I said, but I was like, you know, there was no one sharing their personal experience. There was no one there telling them like, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. This is what you might be feeling. And you're too afraid to speak up about it. This is a place where you can go to. And this is where it's helped me. And I told her, I was thinking about it. And I said, but my husband passed away. She said, but you're not focusing on that. You're focusing on what the result of what, what it brought you to and how you're living your life on a day to day, the, you know, the bigger picture of life and God orchestrating so many things in my life, you know, Mati was part of that process to, you know, help so many people. And there was the word victim that, you know, that has been mentioned, you know, both by Miriam and by Rabbi Jacobson. And, and I shared this with people and every, uh, the first time I ever really got up to speak was at Mati Shloshim. And a week prior to that, Rabbi Yway Jacobson gave a speech that I heard and he talked about Yosef Atzadik and he gave, you know, the brothers finally meet him. And he said, you know, the brothers are feeling however they felt that the, the, the devastation, the embarrassment of just now what they did to their brother, selling them what they did to their father. And in the Torah, it says straight out, you didn't sell me. I, I, I wasn't sold. I was sent. And I heard Rabbi Jacobson say this three weeks post my husband's death. A week later, I got up in front of a group of people. And I said out loud, I, I said, I gave this over. I said, I wasn't sold. I was sent. I don't know where my journey is going to take me, but it's going to take me someplace. These experiences, these series of events, these puzzle pieces, I'm on this yellow brick road taking me to Emerald City, you know, like, you know, Kava Homer. That's where I'm on in my life. The mic drop has taken me to like, it took me to that bridge. I'm on, I, I went on a golden bridge as a result of, of my experiences, but I chose at that moment. And I chose even prior to that, that I'm not going to be a victim of my circumstances. I never played the, I poor me, nebach, she's an almana. I never, those words never came out of my mouth and it motivated me to make better choices in my life. The choices that I've made had led me to me becoming who I am today. And the example that I am, because it is a reflection in the home also you know, David was six weeks old and he refused to eat because there was so much tension. I had to learn, had to, I had to navigate new things in my life. And there's like that famous saying, when you start like working inwards, the outwards start to change around mm-hmm. you. I saw it manifest over time. Yes. From the time that David was born until Mati passed away, David was two and a half years old. So I guess, you know, over the, you know, the scheme of life, it seemed like a short your son David was two and a half years old when your husband passed away. David was two and a half years old and, but there was still so much happening in that time. And, you know, like Miriam had said as well, there was a point where sobriety was part of Mati's life and his sobriety. Cause mine, our, our sobriety dates were different. 
because I knew that I couldn't, I, you know, the first thing you learn now and as you can't control, you can't cure and you're not the cause. And once I accepted those things, I decided that I needed to take my route and I had, to, and all of a sudden I learned this word. I never knew what the word boundaries was. I'm American. I was, you know, English is my first language, but there's a whole set of, of there, a dictionary, Merriam-Webster, you know, these words just were, were gibberish to me at the time. And I learned so many new words. And not only that, you know, just like I'm, I'm saying, I'm sorry, it, you know, actions speak louder than words. I learned how to apply those words into my life. I learned what the word boundary meant. And I learned what that meant. And what I also learned what that meant for me. You can ask Siri the definition of a word, but to apply it to my life, that was a whole nother ballgame because my needs are different than someone else's needs. My boundaries are different than someone else's. So when I share my story, I share my experience. And the reason why I continue to is because there's so many people that say, you're talking, you're, you're telling my story. Are you me? Do we have the same parents? You know, all these different things, you know, that come up throughout the times that I share. And they ask me, like, what did you do? I'll share my experience, strength, and hope. And that's what I do. And when I say, you know, this is the boundary that I set up. There was a point where I had to separate from Mutsi because I couldn't trust him. And I moved into my parents' home for over five months. And there was a level of mysterious nefesh doing that also because, you know, emotionally it was toxic as well. But I, at that point, I learned different tools on how to navigate things in my life. I'm always going to be surrounded by people that aren't fit into my perfect mold of, you know, everything. And what this life has taught me over the last eight years is that I've learned a new way of living in reality. This whole pandemic, like you mentioned, has been a challenge. There has been so much bracha, so much, like, you know, we were schmoozing beforehand of just like what it's been, like this tangible, like this new quality of life. But because I learned what the word acceptance meant beforehand, it helped me navigate the last 12 weeks of my life, which has been- When you're talking, I'm hearing a lot of, both in terms of sharing story, one of the things I've done a lot of is sharing my story. And that's what- propels me is when I hear exactly what you're saying, people tell me that, hey, I hear myself right. in you. And then this other part is when the pandemic hit, feeling is one of the reasons, one of the motivations to start these series of webinars. And Rabbi Simon and I were on a phone call together, and I felt that the work I had been forced to do, quite frankly, in recovery suddenly is becoming useful. It was always useful outside of recovery, Crazy. but now suddenly it's useful in a real life scenario that's affecting the whole world. I felt like I was at an advantage for the first time because of my addiction. Not at a I, I had a conversation with my mother-in-law and I share a lot, you know, on Instagram that she, I'm so close to her and she asked me like how I'm doing. I'm like, I, I feel like I've been prepped for so many things that this pandemic has given me, you know, like the curveballs are, it's not that I'm just like, you know, knocking them out of the park. Not at all. It hasn't been easy breezy. The hardest part of this whole pandemic is that, Mati's loss has been so highlighted even more for David ever in his life. In the last three months, I, you know, it's been, that has been the biggest challenge to navigate. And there's some things that I can communicate to him. And there's some things where like, I have to learn to give it over to a higher power. Or, How old is you your know, son today? He's eight. He's eight, almost eight and a half, you know, and the understanding everything that's there now is different. So, you know, it's, it's, there's, but it's been that learning experience. It's taking my recovery. It's taking my, my way of living to a whole new level because it's a choice that I'm making every day and taking the good with the bad. 
I have a question for um, kind of everyone and Rabbi Simon, when you jump in, if if you can touch on this, because I'm really curious. So both Stephanie and Miriam took the road of, and I as well, have taken the road of sharing our stories somewhat publicly in one form or another, certainly by sitting on this panel here. And I know of situations, especially in the community where I come from, where the opposite has been done. And someone who dies from a drug addiction, um, it's called a stroke or a heart attack or a mysterious... Or aneurysm. Aneurysm. Aneurysm, right? Some of these good ones that can just kind of pop up out of nowhere. And I remember um, a friend of mine sharing online that a guy who I knew had passed from a drug addiction, but the family didn't want it to be said that way. And instead it was an accident or a stroke, something like that, that was being shared. And they were doing a fundraiser for him for, I don't know, a a shul or a mikvah or something that didn't quite connect. And while didn't quite connect to his life, and they certainly didn't connect it in any way to to what was going on. And I know, Stephanie, that you've built a a learning center, I think, for your your husband. Matsi actually started it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm saying in this case, it done that. And I felt anger rise. And I, I reached out to my friend and said, well, why are you sharing this fundraiser? Like, this is not, a, it's, it's, I almost felt like it was a desecration of the person's memory to say that they died for a different reason and were collecting money for some arbitrary cause that benefit everyone. I said, maybe collect money for a rehab, maybe collect money for, uh, for trauma, for therapy, for something that meant was meaningful in his life. Certainly this wasn't. And it just seemed like an opportunity to, to, to raise money. And I'm not sure, so maybe you can help me with this here. In terms of processing that, that anger myself, when I see that, is my way, our way on the panel, is it right? Is it just right for some people? Uh, uh, is it unjustified anger that I have for, for people who don't speak, um, who I don't say don't speak, but lie about why, why this happened instead of bringing more exposure? And in the process of bringing more exposure to it, there's less shame. And we all know that shame is the fuel and the, 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 the oxygen that addiction breathes. Well, you said it right on target. It's all part of the extension of the shame. When people's reputation is more important than reality, it's just like those people that committed suicide after they lost money in the stock market crash. I remember hearing it for the first time as a child. I asked my father, life was less important to them than their money? He said, one day you'll find out, yes, for some people, externals, reputation, image, control, power, the illusion of control and power. It's part of the extension of the, of, the, of the shame and therefore people never really facing the reality. You know, what I was going to weigh in, which I think relates to this, is exactly correct. I gave a talk actually a few weeks ago to many people regarding the pandemic on a Zoom. There's almost a thousand people on it. And I brought the story of Joseph and among other stories. You see, the real formula, the secret, how is Joseph able to get beyond 22 years of being sold into slavery, thrown to prison, torn away from his beloved father. How did he get beyond his own frustration and anger and, and, and uh, wishes for revenge? I mean, it's normal to want vengeance and to at least not accept is because before he was thrown into the situation, he was given the gift of that human dignity I spoke about before. He knew what an ashama was. His father and his mother, Rachel, gave him an unbelievable gift that you are valuable in God's eyes. And no matter what happens to you in life, it happened to you. It's not you. Don't ever identify with your suffering. You know, we've suffered as the Jewish people collectively and individually, but we have never behaved like sufferers. Suffering is an experience, not your identity. 
And knowing that, no matter what would happen to him, including what did happen, so when he met them, he was able to easily say, because he was already, I was his, that was what made him tick. He was made of that, those fibers. He was able to say that this is not what you've done to me. He wasn't just getting them off the hook. You don't control my life. God controls my life. The fact that you were the messengers of this cruelty, you're going to have to deal with that yourself. But our trajectory in our life is not controlled by others. This pandemic, for instance, you really don't have control over the virus, over the, over the COVID-19, but you have complete control of your attitude. That's why I believe what Stephanie just said, what you, Ellie, have said, Miriam in other ways, are people who've been through the fire, you've already come to discover that life is not in your control and that there's a higher purpose and sometimes you know what it is and sometimes you don't. All those that are, fi- are trying to fight and say, when, I, when am I going to regain control of my life? When is my schedule coming back? Are the ones that are fighting a storm they will not be able to beat. You have to know how to navigate. And part of it is embracing the unknown and the mystery and know that you become stronger for it, not weaker for it. It's the essence of the entire Jewish, the only secret for Jewish survival for almost 4,000 years. How are we able to survive where the greatest empires and the greatest populations with money and wealth and, and everything and armies because we always recognize we're on a journey that God is leading us on. So no matter what happens to you, it does not define your existence. The worst things can happen, but your faith, your values, your purpose, that remains forever. It's really the essence of uh, Viktor Frankl's logotherapy, which was corroborated in the Holocaust, where he saw those that had that extra edge of purpose and meaning, though they didn't suffer less, but they had that inner dignity. I am Amazed by my question was going to be throwing back to all of you this question. What about someone listening right now that is in the world, was in, in the quicksand and trapped by a spouse that is addicted and they're not, they don't know how to get out of it? What do you do there? How do they get that dignity? How do you know when to walk away, when to stay? Because you can always say, maybe that's my lot to suffer. And, uh, and you end up becoming an enabler, which is another name for codependent. So how do you, number one, recognize when, when to, as they say, to hold them and when to fold them? And, <laughs> and secondly, to have the dignity of your own life to recognize when you can really embrace your voice. Because many people right now are trapped. You know, you were blessed. I have to say, without even questioning my mind, Stephanie and Miriam, not only was this a gift from heaven, I assure you that in your childhood and your family life, you were given certain validation, a certain reinforcement that gave you the strength. Because there are people right now that feel they deserve to be suffering. They deserve to be worthless. What do you say to people like that? That's what I would like to throw into the picture here, if you don't mind, Ellie. Absolutely. Uh, it's a great I'd question. Be glad to, I, have a, I have a client right now that because of the pandemic, and because of, of the environment that we live in, that everything is texting. Her husband is a, is in recovery. He's doing real good work on him. No communication, no verbal communication. All the communication is on texting for the past two years. And I'm sitting here waiting with her to see when is her threshold will reach that she'll say no or that she will bring bo- both herself and her husband to a point that says, are we going to change the communication here or not? 
So it's really, it's all individual. It's an individual because everybody has his own, like I said, threshold to know how much they can put up with or not. Now, it's very weird what I'm asking for my client on the beginning of, of me working with her to get to take her out of that quicksand. I sit and talk to her to put a schedule for every, mo- every hour of the day when she gets up in the morning till she go to sleep, what she eats, how much she sleep, how much time on computer, how much she drink, uh, um, uh, you know, um, caffeine, what she eat, how she exercise. Because if she's not going to keep that self-care, you know, they call it boundaries, but they don't understand. They think boundaries is something that I'm going to be uh, enforced rather than it's actually empower you. If you keep that schedule, that simple schedule of taking care of yourself from what you eat to exercise, to writing in the journal, to, to reflect and, and pray and keep it going. You are strengthening your inner core that you will be finally listening to that pure neshama, that sadeket inside of you, that tzaddik inside of you, that righteous person inside of you that says things to you that you can and you will overcome this. And this, this is my, this is my, this is the ABC for coming, coming out smelling like a rose. If, if I understand correctly, what you're saying, it's to take care of yourself to the point that you're aligned enough to know what it is you you, you need when it yeah. becomes right. That's so. You it's not clarity? something that someone can sit down with necessarily for an hour and arrive at. These are my needs. And I'm done. Or even they can get from someone else. Stephanie, you made the point earlier that it's your boundaries, right? Someone else may have different boundaries and you may have others. And it's really being honest with yourself about those needs and checking and reflecting. Right. So Miriam, that's what you were, you were recommending. Yes. It's to, it's to create a habit and rituals of, you know, I love the word spiritual because a lot of people say I'm spiritual, but not religious, or I am spiritual, I'm not spiritual. The best religious definition I've heard for spiritual religious is ritual. Rituals that serve the spirits. The SPI that's infused in ritual makes it spiritual. Right, exactly. Yeah. Spiritual is you want to because you know that you're a partner with your higher power. The higher power that brought you here, that he needs you because he cannot do what he what you can do. And I'm yeah. I'm, I'm limiting God, but we are partner with God, and that's the spirit. Religious is you have to. Right, right. I get it. But for someone to know whether or not they're like the spiritual, spiritual has become a word that's in vogue and it's used a lot and it's popular again to be spiritual. So I I think one way of looking at spiritual, the one that resonated the most with me is what you were saying, right? If you have a ritual of journaling on a regular basis, that's a, a, um, a ritual that serves our spirit. I mean, we're not getting our muscles bigger from writing, right? It's a ritual that serves our spirit. If we have a, a ritual of walking in nature and nature calms us or um, releases stress, that's a spiritual ritual. Even working out could be a spiritual ritual if, for some people, right? There's rituals that serve and nourish the spirit. I'm sorry, somebody mentioned over there, that can take many years. Not necessarily if you take part of your regiment daily to connect your higher power and tell him what's going on. You think it, it doesn't have to take that long to really check in. No, no. Stephanie, you want to weigh in a little it's bit? It's the hardest. 
it's the hardest just to check in. And I talk about that also that I had one of the, the, the speeches that I share is that my first Rosh Hashanah was on, it was in a March, it was on March of, of 2013, I think it was 2012, where it was the first time I actually had a conversation with my higher power because I was going to meetings and they kept telling me to give it over to God, give it over God, just like let go and let, and I didn't know how, how what that meant. I grew up going to a an amazing Orthodox school. I had an unbelievable education, unbelievable education, but religion and spirituality. And I've always been more on the, uh, you know, a, a very spiritually connected person. But at that point in my life, my tank was so empty that like, I, there was that moment of, this is my lot. This is where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to figure out still how to make myself functional enough that David has a healthy parent, at least one but I didn't know exactly what the rest, where like I actually fit in. And, you know, Rabbi Jacobson, you were saying how, you know, prior to your, you know, leading up to your question, you know, that we're a nation of faith and of dignity, but we're also a nation of action. And you could have all those things, but you can't put all those things into play without action. And same thing, what Miriam was saying is that, you know, I, you know, I say, when people ask me how, like, you know, how did I become the person I am? I worked out. I mentally worked out. I spiritually worked out. I physically worked out. I emotionally worked out and I dedicated time and I dedicate time every day towards that. When I wake up in the morning, you know, it's so funny because now my son is home all the time and he'll like come into my room and he'll see that I'm awake. And he's like, why aren't you coming out? I said, I'm schmoozing with Hashem. I sit in my bed and we, I have this whole morning regimen of schmoozing with God. And I talk about it when I share also, I schmooze with God. I'm at that relationship with God right now. I didn't always, like I said, Rosh Hashanah didn't exist on, you know, on the first of Tishrei every year until I got to a certain age. But this is because I, I see that when I devote that time into my life, it's the same thing. When I exercise, when I get on the Peloton, I get more energy. You know, that's why I can't exercise at night because I'll be up all night. I have that energy and I get that energy that I need when I write my gratitude list. I get that, like that burst of, you know, you asked me about happiness. I get that full picture of where I am in life. And, you know, when it comes to whether I should stay or go, you know, it could take for me, it was a matter of how long I, and how committed I was to my boundaries, AKA self-care into my, um, you know, learning self-esteem was something I didn't know. I didn't understand what that word meant either. Cause I was told always what that was. What do you understand it means now? Now it's number one, it's self-esteem. It's me. No one else is responsible for any of those things. I'm the one who is responsible for how I feel of how I, you know, hold myself up. It's nice to get a pat on the back from time to time. Cause that was something I never really got growing up. I'm the one who's generally patting myself on the back. There was, you know, I'm going up to New York now and I was sharing how, thank God, there's so many family and friends that are so involved on Mati's side of the family that are so involved in my life. And I love them. They're my family. And someone shared, they're like, you know, it's pretty amazing. Mati really sets you up for so many amazing people in your life. I'm like, I did that. 
I maintained those relationships. I made the connections and I did all those things. There are times where I need to pat myself on the back and be proud of what I've become and what I've made and what I've established. Again, I maintain those relationships, my relationship with God. And also, like I talk about also is that I listen to myself of where that gut feeling that I never knew what that was. Miriam, if someone has the question, let's go into this. And Jacob said, if someone has the question of, should I stay or should I go? That's where they're stuck right now. They're here listening to this conversation and it's bringing up a feeling that maybe they're enabling, maybe they're being codependent, maybe they're lying to themselves and in a situation that's never going to get better. And they have that question, whatever that means for different people, should I stay or should I go? Should I stay in the situation? Should I leave? What, what, do you, what do you tell them? You know, your body is, a, is the best speaker and your body speaks. And unfortunately, we're in a generation that everything is going fast and you're getting texts and you're getting YouTube and you get dip, 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 dip. But at the end of the day, after you've been with your husband, with your spouse, and, and your body is showing you either peaceful or agitation, that's the message if you should stay or you should go. My question is this. Is it something, you know, in recovery, there's, there's the 12 steps, which a lot of people know about. There's also the 12 promises, or otherwise I think called the ninth step promises, but there's 12 promises. And one of those promises, and my, you know, I like to see to some degree the end of something when I start, like what am I working towards? So when I got into recovery and it was really a place of hope and healing for me is what am I getting from it? And I very quickly learned that I'm not guaranteed more money. I'm not guaranteed a relationship. I'm not guaranteed better sex. I'm not guaranteed anything necessarily that I thought was up on the list, there are 12 promises that it lays out that these are the things that I will get. And one of the main promises that, not one of the main promises, one of the promises that deeply resonated with me, and I used to read it every morning, say, okay, this is what I'm working towards. And I would sometimes dialogue also like, hey, I'm working towards this. Like, this isn't true for me right now. Like the one promise that I think is not true for me right now is fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. And I've worked my ass off on these 12 steps and I still have less fear of people and less fear of economic insecurity than I once did, but it's still very much there. But I want to talk about another promise. And the promise is we will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. So my exactly. question for you is, right, when you say the body can give us that answer, it sounds to me like something that can happen quick. I can sit, take a walk in nature for a couple of hours and know exactly where I am. And when I hear the 12 steps and when I hear they say it, it's through the work through working ourselves and getting the own gook out of our system and working through the own pain and our own trauma and our own healing. And then the way we've hurt others. Then at the end, at the end of the ninth step, there's a promise that now suddenly our intuition will be strong enough that we will know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. Like, should I stay or should I go? So is there something that I'm bringing up that speaks to you on that? I'm, I'm more question. If, I'm thinking people want something practical to that. And the way I'm hearing your answer is that it's something they can practically get an answer to very quickly by listening to their body. And I want to know you, if you think that's true. When, when, you, when you hear, when you, see, when you have disappointment about relationships that you have expectation from and you didn't get it, that means that you were conditioned to, to please and you're not in a, in a healthy relationship of give and take from a, from a place of, of harmony. It's a great question, and I would like to give them tool rather than me speaking too much about it because this is my language. 
I would, I would highly recommend to go to coda.org and see the patterns of codependency and the healthy patterns of recovery from codependency and keep, keep reading it. Keep see if you're doing it, keep seeing if you are in the, in the healthy part. And again, we, we are, that's the beauty of, of recovery. It's, it's a process. It's not the perfection and it's a journey. It's not a destination. And be constantly curious to find more and more about yourself that is pure. And unfortunately, because of, of the trauma, because of what happened, because of the fear, because of needing to control and all the, we need to, to have a change of attitude and the change of attitude is through the process. So give yourself time, be patient. Rev Simon, how do you, how do you counsel people with this? Yeah, I would answer the equation a few key points. Einstein said, you cannot solve a problem within the system where the problem was born. It's really based on a Talmudic statement that says, Ein chavosh let me translate. If you're in a pit, you can't just free yourself because you're biased and prejudiced. Anything you do may be part of your own problem. You may be your own worst enemy. And that's especially true when you're entangled with a loved one or, or at least perceived loved one that is uh, addicted or dysfunctional. And you become part of this uh, vicious cycle. So how do you deal with that? That seems like an impossible uh, conundrum, a catch-22. So the answer is, like anything, if uh, toxins enter, toxins can leave. You need fresh air, which is why it's vital to have a third party outside of yourself that you can consult, a mentor, a friend, someone you can trust, which I see a lot of people who are trapped in this place don't want to talk to new people because they're threatened because no one wants to be challenged. No one wants to hear that you know you're screwed up or that you're messed up your life. There can also be the shame. Yeah, the shame, the pain. So number one is it's vital because you need to have, just like if you were going to now invest in a new business or buy a home, you're going to have a lawyer or an accountant helping you. You're not just going to rely on your own resources. You need to have someone you trust because they can add a perspective. That doesn't mean that you're going to change your life overnight, but at least a fresh perspective. That's, I think, vital, vital, which can be a friend. The second point I would make is this. There's a, there is a key litmus test to know whether something's healthy or not healthy, and that's called demoralization. If you're busy and involved in any activity that ultimately demoralizes you, that ultimately weakens you, where you feel disempowered, and not motivated, you can rest assured it's coming from unhealthy forces, unhealthy shame. What, uh, what the rabbis maybe would say from the Yetzir Hara, from the, the evil inclination, because it has no benefit. It's depressing you. It's demoralizing you. It's breaking your spirit. If there's something that motivates you, you cry, you're even depressed, but it motivates you to make change, you know it's coming from a healthier place. So that's a question you have to ask yourself. The life that you're living right now, whatever it is, what's happening to you at the end of the day? You're feeling empowered at the end of the day? You wake up excited about taking on new challenges? Are you, how you see some progress? Now, people who are really trapped don't want to even ask that question. It's too dangerous. They won't ask that question. But you have to always, everybody have to know where they are on the journey. Some people may be able to hear this, and say, you know what, at least I have a question to ask. Because at the end of the day, all healing begins with awareness of the issue. If, you know, the Baal Shem Tov said that there's a concealment that conceals the concealment, which means 
You don't even know there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Or you minimize it to the point and say, it's not so bad. Not so bad. He's a loving guy. Yeah, yeah. He, once in a while, he gives me a slap or other ways that he hurts me, but it's not, wasn't his, it was me, et cetera, et cetera. So then there's a concealment where at least you know it's concealed. So I really think of it like a, like a spectrum. Depends where you're at. There are people, there's no doubt in my mind, and I've met people who right now, if they're listening to this, it's already a good sign because they're at least listening. There are some people who wouldn't even tune into something like this. It's too fright, too threatening. But if someone's listening to this, you have to remember there are some people that can hear a little, a little more, a little other. I mean, I would, I'm sure if someone asked Stephanie, and I would ask, or Miriam, or others that were in this situation, could anything have been said to you when you were in the throes, before you hit your rock bottom, before the epiphany? Could anything have been said to you? Would you have been receptive to anyone saying anything, or you wouldn't have let them in? Nile is a shield. Mm-hmm. No. Right, You're exactly. Right. So, so you have to be very sensitive. I've sat with people who I saw clearly were in total denial. So I didn't come. You, don't, you never go in a full-out assault on a human psyche. Even if you know they're wrong, even if you know they're really messing up their lives, you have to plant seeds. And seeds begin to take sprout. Some people may take more time than others. I think sensitivity to that is critical. You can't shake somebody up and just say, I'll shake you out of your illusion and wake up. doesn't work that way. So I think it's a combination of bringing in fresh air. I'm just summing up what I said. Fresh air and looking at your own life. Are you proud of yourself? Does it look like this is going toward a uh, happy ending, a happier place? And if the answer is no, that I'm demoralized and I'm doing things wrong, it may be, it may be very difficult, but it may become time to start looking at other options. And I'm the last person to tell someone to just leave your spouse. But you know what? If the spouse is so toxic and no change happens, these are important questions to ask. Thank you so much for tuning into that conversation. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. Next week, we will be posting the second episode of this two-part conversation. I hope you have the time to listen to that one. And I also hope you share this podcast with others because you never know who needs to hear Stephanie, Miriam, and Rabbi Simmons' message. Have an awesome day.